you may have seen a little baby around here that my wife had in her arms. Uh, my wife and I, and actually our whole family, really, uh, since we shared this vision with our kids a couple years ago, um, we've been feeling the call from God for a couple years to use our home uh, for the kingdom, specifically, um, oh, she's already here, uh, specifically by sharing the gift of a Christian home uh, with more children. And uh, these aren't our children. These are children God brings into your life through foster and adoption care. And uh, so a little over a week ago, um, because of a late night call, we got this little precious girl who now is off the screen, um, Alexis, into our lives. And uh, it's, it's meant that, like, you know, if you can see the circles under my eyes, you know, for those of you who have had infants in the home, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a big time change. For those of you who have had infants in the home who demand all of your time and your money and your energy, you know what, it's feel, what it feels like to be the walking dead. You sort of become, in, in the care of this baby, you become so tired and so spent that you find yourself doing things. Now, now don't mi- miss this specific point because we're going somewhere with this today. You find yourself doing things while you're practically asleep. In other words, you're moving, your eyes are open, but you're barely alive. And for the first few days that we had Alexis, I, ca- I kept sort of feeling, oh yeah, this is what it's like at 3.30 in the morning to have my arms and my legs moving but my mind and my heart were still way back in bed. You sort of get to this place of taking care of the baby while you are so tired you hardly realize that you're up and walking around. It's like you're moving, but your mind and your heart are firmly planted in that bed. And many of you have experienced exactly what I'm talking about. As it applies to revelation into our lives, the question is this, if we're honest with ourselves... If we're honest about our walk with God through life, how many of us are walking around, arms and legs moving, but our hearts are firmly planted elsewhere? How many of us are here, present, in the pew, but spiritually asleep? Sort of a spiritual zombie, like our hearts are elsewhere. You may be present, you may count on the attendance tally on the sheet, Your rear end may be in the pew, but if Jesus were counting, if Jesus were the one who was deciding who was really present here or not, would you and I make the cut? I can just sort of imagine Jesus himself, like we see in Revelation, walking in here and doing the attendance. Okay, yeah, she's engaged, she's a disciple discipling somebody she's mentoring somebody who needs a friend she's present accounted for he gives to me out of his heart and out of his his love for me instead of begrudgingly present maybe he would walk around and say okay this is this is not good i don't mean to pick on you all but uh, but but maybe he would say she's carrying a grudge and manipulating her husband to be the messiah he can't be she's absent what if, what if that were the kind of phenomenon that went on if Jesus walked through this worship service and he did the attendance? And it wasn't whether or not 
Your rear end was in the pew. Because friends, as we'll see here in Revelation 3 today, in this letter from Jesus to the church, to a dead church, you can be here and not be here. You can punch a time clock and show up on Sunday morning and count on the attendance sheet, but spiritually be the walking dead, be a zombie. In fact, many of us today are probably wearing the Jesus t-shirt, carrying the Bible to church, and yet never really reading it the rest of the week, trying to convince ourselves, in fact, that we're alive when maybe we're dead. When maybe we're dead. And the message of Revelation is be prepared, friends. (laughs) Get ready, because Jesus will come, and he will be the one taking the attendance. So we've got good stuff from Revelation 3 today. Go ahead and and turn there and let's read together this passage in Revelation, the third chapter, in the first six verses here. Follow along if you would. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write this, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jump back to verse 1 here for just a bit. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This letter here in Sardis is the fifth of seven letters. Let's talk for just a minute about how this letter got to them and how that helps us understand how the Word of God is communicated. Look at verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis. Now, because, because there's an angel involved, that's a tip-off right off the, the top of the bat. That's a tip-off that this letter is written and delivered with the authority of God. Remember that the word angel just means messenger. And in this case, it's a messenger from God. So this letter was communicated to the Apostle John who received it from a messenger so that the church in Sardis could read it and so that we could read it. The key point here is this. The Word of God is communicated, yes, by words on a page, but also, and think about how you came to know about the Lord and how you came to know Christ personally. And tell me if this wasn't your experience primarily the word of god is communicated to us by people the word of god is communicated to us by people verbalizing the truth of god we learn about him and his character and his nature by what people say and how they act so their whole lives is a communication of the word of god if it's true or the word of man the key point in the passage today because of the main problem in Sardis, which we'll unpack a little bit later, is this idea that the Word of God 
is communicated through people. The problem in Sardis is that they did not communicate the word of God. They were silent. They, in fact, had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. Let me show you again from Revelation 1. We looked at this earlier, but I want to show you again in Revelation 1, 1 and 2, how this works. In Revelation 1, 1 and 2, it says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, of means both from and about, so that this is a revelation both from and about Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that him there refers to Jesus. So far we have God the Father and God the Son. There are two people so far involved in the transmission. And also the point is that God started this communication. He started this revelation of himself to us. John 1 says, in referring to the Genesis, in the beginning of the communication of God's truth, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That same guy who wrote those words wrote these words. So back to Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, there's another person involved, that's us, we're his servants, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It says he made it known by sending his angel, by communication through people, through messengers, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So there are five people involved in this transmission. So when this letter, when this letter gets to the church at Sardis, it comes to them with the full weight and authority of words from God's mouth. And in ancient politics, as well as today, ambassadors and messengers of letters from faraway lands are to be treated as if the king or the president himself is the one speaking. In fact, if a, if a messenger carried a letter with the seal of the king, uh, the king's ring, which the king alone wore, then it was as if the king himself was speaking. That's part of why we call this the word of God. It was written to us, delivered to us, as if God himself is speaking to us these words. And that's how the transmission of the word of God works. Don't miss this because it hints at the problem in Sardis. The transmission of the word of God happens through people. Paul himself says in Romans 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to hear without a person who communicates the truth of the Word of God? That is why living as a witness our whole lives as a communication of the Word of God, which Sardis wasn't doing, that's why that is so vitally important. We get to be a piece of the puzzle of God's work of redemption in, in communicating His love and His grace and His mercy and His truth and even His judgment in the lives of people to help them. So for us, as we're reading this amazing book, it's as if Jesus himself walked up to you, handed you this letter and said, read this. You have to hear this message contained in this letter. You need to heed this truth. So, so here we are today, February 2013, sitting under the authority of God's word in worship, and I am speaking to you to teach you the very words of God. And, and if that isn't your posture for why you're here, if that's not the reason why you're here to learn from the word of God, then check yourself. Because you may be the walking dead and not even know it. You may say the right things so your spouse thinks you're safe. 
and that you're in love in Jesus, but you really can have your heart be far from God and know it. You're the walking dead. You may show up to life group every couple weeks or so, carry your Bible, because you know you're supposed to, but, but never really read it, and have no desire whatsoever to learn more about the truth of God. You're the walking dead. This gathering of Christ followers today isn't about pleasing the spouse or punching the time clock in the good dad game. Whether you realize it or not, this service, this word, our gathering here today, whether or not you give in to this truth, this gathering of Christ's followers is about humbling yourself before God and having soft and open hearts to receive his message that's being spoken to you at this very moment. And as we sit here, as we learn together in these seats, in hearing the word of God, we are learning to live. We are learning to be who he made us to be if you have ears to hear even now as we study the Word together. Let's move on in the passage here. More authority in verse 1. We're still in verse 1. We'll get there. Look at verse 1 again. There's more of this Word of God authority established at the beginning. It says to the angel of the church in Sardis, we'll talk about Sardis in a couple minutes. It says the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is a a royal announcement. This is a hear ye, hear ye kind of announcement at the beginning of this letter. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This seven spirits is a figurative way of saying that Jesus has all of the Holy Spirit in him. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit in him. And seven, of course, is the number of uh, completion and perfection. And the seven stars represents the seven churches to whom these are written and really represents all churches, therefore us even today. So this announcement of Jesus' authority here is saying that Jesus has his sights set on all the churches and all the people in those churches. It's like that description of a couple weeks ago in Revelation where it calls him the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. And what Jesus sees with the fullness of the Holy Spirit here, with his, with his piercing eyes that see all the way through mind and heart, what he sees in this church is not good. In fact, unlike all of the other letters in Revelation, there is no commendation in this letter there's no positive encouragement from jesus as he walks among this church he gets straight to the point in verse one and he says this i know your works i know your works you have the reputation of being alive but you are dead this is ironic language these are not good works Uh, These are what the the folks in Sardis probably called good works because they wore the t-shirt and said the right things. But Jesus knows better because he's the one taking attendance. And in other words, they are called good. They are named good by the church in Sardis and even by others. They have the reputation of being good, but they are not good. It literally says, and this is important for the problem here at Sardis, It literally says you have a name that you live. You have been named live, life, alive. You've been named that by reputation, but actually your name is dead. Jesus comes to this church and says you've been named that. And this is not a positive statement, but a negative one. And so in this 
passage here, confessing the name of Christ will become a central theme as we'll find working through the test. He's saying, listen up, I'm the one taking attendance. I know your name. Your reputation's alive, but you're dead. So let's go ahead and move on and talk about Sardis a little bit. There's some cool background for this city, uh, for the city of Sardis, before we move on to the text that that you kind of need to know as we read the rest of this. Uh, Verse 1 says you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The city of Sardis was known as an impregnable fortress, uh, some 1,500 feet above the valley floor. And the hill on which Sardis was built had this sort of perpendicular, almost smooth wall going up to the city walls along the side of this mountain. And there was only one way in and one way out, and it was along a very steep and very difficult winding path to the top for the city. In fact, Sardis considered itself so impenetrable, so so safe from attack, that their own military didn't bother to guard a certain place along that city wall. They thought no one could possibly attack us from that place. And so they thought themselves so safe that they left a whole section of their wall unguarded. So not just once, but twice, Sardis was attacked and defeated through that very place. And it became known, it became sort of a proverb in the whole ancient world that, it was, that if you captured the Acropolis of Sar- Sardis, if you captured the city of Sarlis, Sardis, it was a way of saying you've done the impossible. In fact, there's a story about one of the kings of Sardis who knew that the Persians were coming to attack. And instead of, instead of placing the military there where he already knew they were vulnerable, He went to sleep and discovered the next morning that the Persians had come in through that unguarded side of the city. So with that history, you can imagine the people in this church at Sardis who knew this history, hearing these words from Jesus in verse 2. These are people who thought themselves safe. These are people who thought that they were fine. Verse 2 says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Get up from your spiritual slumber. This is sort of a spiritual slap in the face for those who are half there, half-hearted, not fully alive. So he moves on in verse 2 and he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In other words, the church in Sardis didn't finish what it had started. They'd been diligent and vigilant in their work, but they had flamed out without following through. How many of us does that easily describe? In our over-busy, overburdened, too-much-to-do, always-saying-yes kind of world, it's hard to be vigilant in one's spiritual life when you say yes to everything else except a relationship with God through His Word. How many of us does that describe? How many spiritual zombies does that create in our American overbusy, overburdened church? Good intentions, but lacking vigilance. So the fix is offered here in verse 3. Jesus is always offering grace and mercy, as even to the spiritual zombies in Sardis. And this is done through repentance continually in these letters. It says this, verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
It says, keep it singular, meaning cling to the basic gospel message of repentance from sin. It's why the word repentance is all over these letters. Repent, repent, repent. For the record here, this is clearly directed to both unbelievers and believers. The important point being that repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance for the believer is a way of life. It's a way of doing battle against sin in your life. Don't get complacent as if you know where those walls and those openings are. Jesus, through this text and through this word and, and, and through the Holy Spirit, is the one walking through taking attendance. And this warning is for both believers and unbelievers, disciples and fakes. So don't get too loose and easy in your Christian walk. There's too much, too much at stake. Many of us sitting in these pews today are loose and easy in our Christian walk and our relationship with God. We'll get to it someday, is what we keep telling ourselves. What if today is it? What if today is it? And what if, what if you, acting like you've got forever to repent of being loose and easy in your Christian walk, is evidence of your own spiritual short-sightedness? What if that's the evidence of being a spiritual zombie? He warns them in this passage of that kind of complacency. Look then at verse 3. Remember then what you received and what you've heard. Keep it and repent. He says, if you will not wake up, if you will not have a heart awakened to my voice that calls you to repent and to battle against sin, he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus is recalling his own words in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 44, where he says, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. I found this cool picture that sort of, that sort of pictures and, and illustrates uh, this passage here. It's from a new graphic novel about Revelation that I wanted to show you. Uh, these are the, presumably the guards in Sardis. And it illustrates the parallel between the history of Sardis. It's a little hard to see, but, but just barely there in the middle, you see the thief coming. It says, for if you do not awaken, I will come upon you like a thief, and you will not know at what moment I will spring upon you. Friends, many of us might be sitting at the gate of our lives being lazy. You may be holding a sword. You may have the Jesus t-shirt and carry a Bible in your back window. But really... But really, you're sitting on your chair, sitting back, sipping lemonade with your hat over your eyes. And the thief will spring upon your heart and the hearts of your family, and you'll be unaware. That's what it's like to be asleep on the job, spiritually asleep. But of course, there's hope for life, and Jesus is offering it here. That hope comes in the next few verses here. And that hope, the key point, as we mentioned before, is in the communicating of the gospel. The communicating of the gospel is that hope. In living up to, he's saying, in living up to the name and the reputation that they had. He says this, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. 
They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. There's that communicating of the truth of God's word. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jump back there to verse uh, 4 there. It says, yet you have a few names still in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. The people in Sardis lived in a context where it was believed had the largest synagogue known in the ancient world. There was this humongous synagogue of Jewish worshipers that held up to 1,000 at a time. It's the largest one we know of in ancient history. And so the people in the church at Sardis were generally giving up in confessing the name of Christ because it was more comfortable. It kept them at ease. It kept them able to sustain relationships with Jews in that synagogue and with the Persians and the Romans in that city. So they became a place that was complacent in confessing the name of Jesus. But verse 4 says, yet you still have. Yet you still have a few names. There's that naming concept. A few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me. They will walk with me in white. Here the problem of the church at Sardis is made explicit. The ones who name Christ Jesus as Lord, not just once to gain a reputation, but as an ongoing repentant follower submitted to Christ's authority, the ones who name Jesus as Lord, not just once, but as an ongoing act of repentance and turning their their hearts over, they will walk with me in white. For they, the ones who are named as worthy of me, they are worthy. The one who conquers, that's their new name. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name, the name conqueror, before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The lesson from Sardis is that if we confess his name, not just as we we come down this aisle, but if our lives become a confession of the truth of the gospel that we not just say, but that we do, that our lives are a communication and confession of that gospel. If that is who we are, he will name us to his father. And we will receive the name conqueror. And we will wear robes of white. And we will know Jesus forever. And we will be in perfect relationship with the one who created us and made us and longs for intimate, lasting relationship. That's the message of the gospel for us in Revelation. We have the privilege of the opportunity to name him as Lord. Not just by making ourselves feel good and wearing the t-shirt every once in a while, but by living sacrificial lives that reflect what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're about to come to a time of communion here in a couple of minutes that pictures that transaction. The gospel truth that His life sacrificed, lived for us on our behalf is what made us able to confess Him in the first place. 
There was no goodness in us. It was His perfect life that we name and confess that gives us the ability to know Him and to love Him and to live as He's called us to live. And that's the greatest privilege we could ever know.